Hey everyone, Beyond the Baseline is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners, more payouts than any other site. Enter the promo code BEYOND at FanDuel.com. Get a bonus match of up to 200 bucks. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app. The easiest way to find a great deal, pay for your ticket and get to your seat. Download the SeatGeek app, enter our code BEYOND for 20 bucks off your first purchase. I know the police are going to be out there keeping us safe, keeping the fans safe, and doing their very best on a day when most of them should be off watching football or spending it with their families on a, on a Sunday. And, you know, any, anyone that's, that's in uniform, that's putting their life on the line for our safety, deserves to be called a hero. And I think there are a few people that aren't taking that as seriously and, and aren't doing the job that, that they signed up to do. And, and I think this officer falls into that category, unfortunately. So I don't hold any grudges. I don't hold anyone else responsible but the person involved. And, um, you know, the rest of the force, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not too tired shake plenty of their hands and thank them for what they do on on this Sunday and and every day. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here, Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. This week we have an in-studio guest, no Lindsay Davenport by phone in three-hour time difference. We've got a live body in this luxurious podcast suite. James Blake, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, you came here to enjoy a beautiful fall day in New York where it's 48 degrees and raining. Well, tell us why you're in town. Yeah, this isn't helping me uh, win the fight of coming, moving back to the East Coast with my wife. But I, uh, <laughs> I'm here for the marathon, New York City Marathon. I'm excited to run it on Sunday, um, raising money for the James Blake Foundation for cancer research. Um, if someone wants to donate, go to CrowdRise.com and search for James Blake. Uh, but I'm a little nervous about actually finishing the 26 miles. <laughs> My guess is you'll be okay. How did this? Uh, how, how did this come about? And were you inspired by Carolyn Wozniak? <laughs> inspired and There's then frustrated. Players in a row. Yeah, That's inspired good. and then frustrated because she killed it. She did it in 326. Well, 330, yeah, 330 right? Yeah, which is amazing, especially since she hadn't. Uh, she was in the middle of her career and still playing great on tour and and able to find time to train. I've uh, I don't have that full time job and I've still been training and. I don't think I'll get close to 326, but it all started about four years ago. We decided to have runners run and raise money for for the foundation, and that was when I was still on tour, so I had a good excuse to not do it. And I've got uh, I've got no excuse anymore, and I'm uh, so I'm I'm going to get out there and run uh, run for the foundation myself. So, in all seriousness, how big a training leap is this? I mean, you clearly had a base as a professional athlete. How different is this? Yeah. What, what would you have done? Put it this way: five years ago, if I'd said go run, tell me when you stop. How many miles are you doing? Uh, well, the most at that point in my life I'd ever run was five miles, and that was uh, almost by accident. I was going to run a turkey trot with my wife, and I uh, thought it was a 5K, and when we showed up, it was a five-miler. <laughs> that was a little uh, little frustrating to me, but that's the longest I'd run. Most times when I would run on tour, it was a lot of sprints, uh, so I did um, you know, tons of things that are good for footwork and agility and speed, but not a lot of these real long endurance runs, so... Um, Nowadays, it's uh, it's a little longer, and this training was extensive. It was it was completely different than the training I did on tour, but it's it's fun to push your body in different ways. What's the longest training run you've been on? Have you, have now, you done, yeah, you the longest one I did was a couple a few weeks ago was a twenty miler, and that was uh, that was tough. <laughs> and twenty six will be hopefully they say if you can run eighteen or if you can run twenty, you, you'll be able to get twenty six. So I'm uh, I'm trusting that conventional wisdom. Could you imagine doing this in the thick of your? I mean, well, Carolyn did this coming off. 
a U.S. Open final. Yeah, I cannot believe she did that. She's an absolute star for how good a good of an athlete she is to be uh, to be a runner. And I've more and more respect for her and i i've told her when i saw her that i hate her for how bad she's gonna make me look when i uh when i limp across the finish line but you're gonna get across the finish line i'm gonna get across the finish line but it might it, it won't be as quickly as caroline did and hopefully it will be uh faster than uh than my trainer did because i know I, I made fun of him for taking too long so i'll uh i'll hopefully have to beat that that was in about 4 30 i'm trying to think what lance had a good time a few years lance ago was incredible, you know Mor- moresmo ran i, I think so sub, sub four Okay, that's a great effort. Anything sub four is is an accomplishment by by my standards. That's for sure. You running this with anyone? Uh, I'm running it with uh, actually the same person that paced Caroline last year, John Honorkamp. Um, he's a really nice guy. He actually did my twenty miler with me, uh, so hopefully we've got a we've got a little knowledge of each other, and he can he can help me uh, pace myself. And it, I think the biggest problem of what I've heard is. Uh, going out too fast and getting a little too excited, amped with the crowd there and, and feeling like you can, uh, you can go faster than you really should be going. So uh, he's going to keep me under control at that time, I think. What's, uh, we're, we're taping this on a Wednesday, next 72 hours. You're not going to the Mets game. No, I think that's a, that would probably be a bad idea. I'll be sitting uh, watching in my, uh, in my hotel room like I did last night and uh, up probably far too late. I wish they could have closed that out in nine innings and, and not had me up till one thirty in the morning. I will grope at an obvious storyline. That's what we do in media. There, <laughs> there is a certain irony I would maintain to uh, the marathon is this great New York Day, great celebration of New York. I think we could spin this. There's a, a certain irony of you uh, taking part of this after the events during the uh, during the U.S. Open. How, how does sort of everything that's transpired since Labor Day weekend sort of figure into all this? Well, um, for me, it's... Um you know, it's not really an issue about the marathon at all. It, that was an issue about one officer. And I, I think it's it's such a minority in the police force that I know the police are going to be out there uh, keeping us safe, keeping the fans safe and doing their very best uh, on a day when most of them should be off watching football or spending it with their families on a, on a Sunday. And, and I appreciate everything they do. I just think um, the, the good cops need to be aware that some of the bad cops could could uh could sully the 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 badge which to me is something you know any anyone that's that's in uniform that's putting their life on the line for our safety deserves to be called a hero and i think there are a few people that aren't taking that as seriously and and aren't doing the job that that they signed up to do and and i think this officer falls into that category unfortunately so i don't hold any grudges i don't hold anything uh anyone else responsible but the person involved and um you know the rest of the force i'm i'm really uh I'm hoping I'm not too tired to shake plenty of their hands and, and thank them for what they do on, on this Sunday and, and every day. I was sort of curious about how, I mean, this came out of the blue, this mm. incident, clearly. Yeah. And in, yeah. in, every, in every possible way, you, yeah. you've spoken about it quite a bit in the last yeah. few weeks. Um, I mean, I think, candidly, I think you find a really nice balance between addressing it mm-hmm. and making statements that need to be made. And at the same time, you're not, no one's accusing you of grandstanding. How much sort of, energy is this taken out of you uh it's taken a lot of um a lot of time and um that's okay i'm i'm fine with that because um when it happened that uh, you know i was i was so much in shock that i didn't think about what the next step was until i until i realized that i do have a voice and i heard from a lot of people that said similar things happen to them or similar things happen to their friends and and then i realized how often this happens that 
most people don't have that voice. So I, I really thought I, I need to do something about this. I, I need to be the voice that most people don't have. And now that I'm realizing it's taking a lot of time to do that, I'm, I'm still happy to do that because um, I thought about it immediately after when I spoke to my wife and she asked, what if this had happened to me? And I, I just can't fathom it happening to someone I care about, someone that I love and and just wouldn't ever want to see that video of someone else. It's one thing to see it of me. And it's I actually think it's less traumatizing to watch that happened to myself than it is to if I were to watch it to one of my family members or one of my best friends or someone that I, I truly loved and cared about. So um, it, it's it's a a welcoming a welcome role that I play in being uh, in taking up some of my time. Last last question about this, and then we'll move on. But we've you know I, we've known each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think the first time we met, you were still at Harvard, and I I always thought that you handled race really gracefully, and you made a point that you didn't run from any issues, but you also made a point of stressing that you were biracial Mm -hmm. and that not everything had to be seen through a prism of race. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it did, but your mother was British and that, Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you really sort of had this balance between accepting an identity and also not shirking, I I would say responsibilities. Mm -hmm. It it seemed to me this was a theme too in, in, uh, in this most recent event that there was a racial component, but you really made it about police and policing and aggression and, yeah, did did not play a trope, but didn't run from it either. Yeah, I feel that um, you know a lot of people want to place that um, that label on it that it's a racial incident, and I um, you know I feel like that's an important uh, movement right now. The Black Lives Matter movement is very important. There's a ton of uh, incidences where uh, there is racial profiling. There is, there there are um, racial factors involved in so many things. I'm not naive to think we live in a post-racial society, but this incident was so obviously about excessive force. It was an abuse of power, um, that I don't think it's, um, it's fair to, to bring all of that together and make this about abuse of, uh, abuse of power or excessive force and the racial component, because I think the more obvious, um, factor here is the, the excessive force. And I want that to be shown that this, this officer was abusing, um, what he felt he had the authority to do. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to, to make this uh, totally about race because then I think um, you're, bringing into, you're bringing such a bigger issue. That should be a whole other topic. That should be brought up uh, the next time there's a movement uh, or a rally around Black Lives Matter. There are better incidences, there are better examples of, of racial incidents that they can use as opposed to this one. This one, I think, should be focused more on the excessive force. So this is the, the awkward transition part of our show (laughs) we'll we'll put a plug in here for one of our sponsors so it's not quite as as graceless pro tennis is all pressure all the time it's the same way in the nfl when the stakes are this high it's amazing we still have five undefeated nfl teams now with daily fantasy sports sundays turns into a whole new experience if you wanted to try it out you can now use our code beyond at fanduel.com for a bonus match of up to 200 bucks fanduel is the leader in one week fantasy football more winners more payouts than any other site this week alone 75 million dollars in payouts and entry fees start as low as just a buck there's a league for everyone over a million players have won money playing fantasy on fanduel now it's your turn how do you do it it's simple. Go to FanDuel.com, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use the code BEYOND, and sign up now. Special offer for new users. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it with up to 200 bucks. It gets earned as you play. That's a bonus of 200 bucks. The offer's good only to the first 50 people that use FanDuel.com BEYOND code. 
Go to the website, FanDuel.com. Go pick Sammy Watkins. Pick Des Bryant. Figure out who's injured and who's not. Win money on FanDuel. Do it today. Let's talk a little tennis. All right. Where, uh, I'm always interested in this with with players that retire. Some Mm -hmm. go cold turkey. Some, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I talked to Andy about this a few Mm -hmm. years ago, Andy Roddick, and he said, you know, it's really hard for me to watch tennis knowing that I can still beat the majority of players (laughs) that are out there. I don't think he said that to diminish the field, but I think it was hard for him to sort of get into tennis knowing he turned on the TV and odds were good. You know, 10 matches against the guy they were showing, he'd probably win six or seven of them. What's your relationship with the sport right now? I actually like watching it, and and I um, I think it was tough at first. Probably the I would say the only time it was tough for me was that first Australian Open that I missed. Uh, so I retired at the U.S. Open two years ago, and that first Australian Open, uh, just for me thinking about that trip down there and how many times I'd made it and how much I loved being there, um, that was tough for me. But after that, I feel like I, I made my peace with the fact that I'm not on tour anymore. I'm not. That's not a part of my life. Um, and I can watch it and appreciate it as a fan. And also at that point, I feel like I was pretty comfortable with the fact that nine times out of ten, if I turn on the TV, those guys can beat me now. Because I, I had taken some time off. Uh, my body needed time to heal. And even then, I, I wouldn't have been able to train like like I used to be able to. So I knew I'm not going to be one of those bitter guys at 50 years old that's saying back when I was playing, I would have beaten all these guys. These guys are getting so much better and improving. And they're it's I want to give them all the credit in the world for being out there and doing doing a lot of the hard work that it takes to get to where they are. I always said you had such a strange career in the sense that the expectation came so late in the game. Mm-hmm. And for a while, you know, I remember sitting with you in Miami once and you were mm-hmm. like, I've got buddies that are have these grinding away <laughs> under fluorescent lights at desk jobs and here yeah. I am deciding what party to go to and <laughs> if I lose tomorrow I'm still gonna get a nice check. Yeah. How long did it take you to sort of get rid of the boy, this must, this is all gravy. I don't expect any of this. How, how long did it take you before you sort of said to yourself, look, I'm a top 10 tennis player and I shouldn't be in the, hey, lucky to be here, life is good phase? Yeah, I think um, at first, when I first got up to around 20 in the world and then started dropping, that's when I, that's when I felt like I belonged uh, when I got up to 20 in the world. But then uh, I put maybe a little bit too much pressure. I think it was almost the opposite, but too much pressure on myself saying, well, I'm here now. Now everyone has to come get me. And I'm, uh, I could only almost get complacent for a little while there. And then I got knocked down to size. Everyone, you know, if, you, if you're not hungry to get to the next level, to get to the next step, to keep improving, guys are going to knock you off because everyone is gunning for you at that point. So when I first started dropping, um, that's when reality struck. And I said, Hey, I need to be back. Uh, working as hard as I can, doing everything I can to get better, and and just as hungry as these other guys that are chasing me. And then, unfortunately, I got hurt. And that was when, 2004, I was out for almost the whole year. And when I came back, it started. It almost started the process again because I started out with no expectations and didn't know if I'd be able to play, how I'd be able to play. And as I started rising, that's when I definitely knew, okay, I'm not taking this for granted, but I'm also... I'm here to do a job. I'm here to work and I'm here to get better. And that's when I kind of made my rise up to top 10 and and stayed there for a little while and, and felt like I was a legitimate uh, contender for slams or for master series. And, you know, that was at the time when I felt like when I'm playing well, I'm going to beat anyone in the world. So now I, I need to get out there and just, just prove that and play well. Roger tend to prove me wrong, but the rest of the guys, I still felt that, that same feeling. You know, we do this without notes. We're just, we're just two guys talking. Um, 
you may, this just occurred to me though you you say you were hurt in, in 2004 and that yeah. was really a, a rough year for you in a lot mm-hmm. of ways but tell me if I, you, you ran into a net post in, yeah. in, in the in rome right yeah i ran into a net post, post in rome that fractured a vertebrae in my neck and uh came home and uh and spent time with my dad my dad passed away um in july of that year and then a week later i got sick i got um zoster uh shingles, shingles and right? it affected my uh my facial nerve, which they said is one of the two worst nerves to get it in because it affects so much. It affected my sight. I'd, half my, my face was paralyzed, had vision problems, hearing problems, balance problems. It, you know, it really affected a lot, so I wasn't back until January of the next year. You're a brutal-looking guy, so that must have <laughs> but, but I'm curious about the uh, net post. Yeah. Was there any, and you probably can guess where I'm going with this, any, any uh, discussion of litigation? No, I never even thought about that. I was uh, honestly when I when I got home, I thought about how lucky I was because the first doctor I saw here in the states said um, for me to hit where I hit on my neck and to have actually fractured something, he would have thought it was a car accident. So um, it must have been a lot of force. And he said if that was on the top of my head, um, we wouldn't even be I talking remember, about yeah, I you know, we wouldn't, wouldn't yeah, be talking yeah. about walking again. Right. We, you know, so that I just felt lucky to do that, and the fact that he said that I'd be back playing it would just take you know a few months or whatever that's to me i thought of that and i said you know what that's the same as if i had gone over my ankle real bad and had a you know grade three sprain or something and i couldn't play for a couple months so i thought you know what i i just broke my neck and i'm only going to be off the tour for a few months i, I should just count my blessings no uh no no negligence suit though <laughs> no 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 definitely not it's and that to me uh, it was no one's fault. I, I slipped on the, I mean, I stuck, my foot kind of stuck in the clay and I hurtled forward and, um, you know, I almost wish it was a, a match court, I guess, because they, they usually have that padding with the sponsors. Right, so sponsors, right. along with uh, giving the, the financial support. Say, that's, that, why we, that's why we need yeah, to sell those net sponsors. Yeah, the financial support they give is great, but if they, if they put those uh, those pads on there, it might have uh, saved my neck. But, it, um, you know, I, I know that it was, you know, it's not like anyone was doing that on purpose or anyone was negligent at all. It was just, um, you know, a freak accident. See, I don't know, but it was one of the only other instances I can think of where there was a condition at a tournament that mm. – Led to an injury. What um, nice nice period here for uh, U.S. Junior tennis. I don't know if you've been. I don't know how close yeah, are you following yeah, Taylor yeah, Fritz been has been. Yeah, beating, I've been speaking to him. Dustin, you know, that's that's, yeah. an, that's an indirect over Rafa. For yeah, a, <laughs> yeah, I've been speaking to Taylor a lot. He's a, he's a really good kid and and has a lot of, a lot of talent. And I think one of the best things about this group is their group. You've got Taylor, you've got Riley Opelka, you've got uh, Tommy Paul, you've got Francis Tiafo, Michael Moe, uh, William Blumberg. They got so many kids right now that are going to hopefully make that transition to the main tour, that they're going to push each other. The same way Andy and I pushed I each say, other. I mean, you guys, Marty yeah. and, and to the Brian's sort of in a double something. I mean, you had Absolutely. a nice and we And, too, and right? it makes a big difference because I mean, we had Taylor Dent. We had Robbie Ginepper. We had a lot of good guys. Um, and, you know, the generations passed with the Andre and Pete and Jim. And, you know, our our generation did it in a very friendly way. And, you know, from what I've heard about generations past, it was they, more they of a... They weren't uh, renting vans. And, exactly. Uh, it was more of an antagonistic uh, rivalry. And this one, it seems like this group of guys is friendly, but... No matter how they do it, they're going to push each other. You know, Andy and I were, were best of friends, but if he saw me doing something in practice, he wanted to do it one step harder. If I was uh, him doing something, I wanted to work a little harder. We, we pushed each other. And if I was in a tournament and he had lost, 
and he was cheering for me to go further, but he wanted to do that the next time and same vice versa. I was cheering for him, but then next time it pushed me to be better. So these kids are going to push each other. I think Taylor right now is probably the, you know, the leader, um, but he's going to get pushed by Francis. He's going to get pushed by Riley soon. And those guys are going to be, uh, those guys are all going to make each other better. And that to me is exciting for American tennis. So someone had a good point to me too. They said that, you know, there's only X in Nike money. There are only mm-hmm. X many wild cards. And the mm-hmm. fact that they're divvying these up and so nobody's, no one's getting fat. Yeah. Um, is going to help these guys. I, I, I agree. Cause if you're, if you're the one yeah, right. superstar the one in the only, making, like, you've got, right. you know, you've got every wild card, you know, you've got, you know, a big contract from Nike, you know, you've got all the, all these things kind of in hand. It can lead to a little complacency and right. Especially with young kids. I mean, a lot of people forget these are 17, 18 year old kids that, you know, they're making mistakes. Every 17 or 18-year-old, I think if, if people think about their freshman year in college, they know they, they probably made some some bad decisions. And these kids will do that, but it's, it's you know, important at this time because they're, they're out on their own. They're making their own decisions. So it's a little tougher, and it's, uh, it's higher pressure. And nowadays, they, they'll have to make these decisions, and they'll, they won't have those things in hand. They'll have to work hard for those wild cards. They'll have to earn those. And I think it's a really good feeling for them to earn everything they get. Hold that thought, James Blake. We're going to pay some bills. Whatever your game, live tennis, the NFL, the NBA with just kicked off, baseball that's just concluding, there's nothing like catching a game in person. The SeatGeek app is the best way to find a great deal. Pay for your ticket and get to your seat. Now, when you buy your first tickets on the SeatGeek app and use our code BEYOND, they'll send you a $20 check to your house. It is simple. Download the app. It's free. Takes less than a minute. Search for your event. Find a great deal. Use our code BEYOND. And SeatGeek will essentially pay you to use their service. SeatGeek pulls in options from hundreds of sellers. Think of it as ticketing's kayak. When you shop, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available all on one page. Again, they're going to pay you $20 if you buy your first tickets. Download the app, enter the code BEYOND. SeatGeek will then send you 20 bucks once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. Live tennis, the Mets, Royals, and the World Series, NFL Week 8. If you see it in person, you'll want to download SeatGeek app and enter our code BEYOND. Speaking of the World Series, my colleagues Ted Keith and Steve Canella have an essential show for baseball fans, The Strike Zone. Go inside the 2015 World Series with expert views on the Royals and Mets, who, strangely enough, are winners of the 85 and 86 World Series, respectively. This game is a three-decade throwback. What were you doing in 1985? Jamie Lasanti, our producer, you were not born. That is depressing. Steve and Ted, however, were. Go to the Strike Zone podcast, search for it on iTunes, or visit si.com backslash podcasts. So when we were coming up, someone uh, recognized you and said he played against you in high school uh, in Connecticut. We yeah. obviously associate you with Fairfield County. Yeah. Uh, how the hell is it that you're complete opposite corner of the country? And uh, what, what are the odds you you get back to the Northeast? Yeah, it's um, the odds right now are not good if I'm that I'll be back here full time. But I'm going to come back here as much as I can in the summers when my when the family can tolerate the weather. So I'll be yeah, back so a bunch. Today's today's not doing wonders for your recruiting. Today, uh, t- yeah, today's not helping, but it, it, it's not the summer anymore. So we'll be back in the summers, I think, when the kids are are not in school, and and hopefully we can uh, we can spend plenty of time here in in Fairfield County. But you you think you're 
You think you're out west for the long haul? I think the kids are going to grow up out west. Yeah, which I, I've uh, I've told my wife might uh, might be tough to ever get them to come to snow. Now, if they if they get used to San Diego weather, I don't know if they'll ever want to leave. So we'll see if uh, if they end up uh, in school out there and and not wanting to leave. Um. So what's I mean what's what's next for you? You're doing great commentary. You're Thanks. Crack, crack the uh, crack the old tennis channel. Happy to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Happy to um, have you. What's what's kind of you know? I'm gonna sound like a mother here, but like, what, <laughs> what do you, you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, I, well, I'm still doing. I'm still being active doing the Power Share series. Uh, you know, Jim Courier runs that uh, that those events. So I'll do some of those and do some tennis channel events. But uh, what I'd love to do is I'd love to actually start. Um, I don't want to call it an academy, but some sort of a program, a tennis program out in San Diego because, you know, Taylor Fritz is from Rancho Santa Fe, right where I am, and there's a few other great players there, but I don't feel like there's any central location where a lot of people train, and I'd love to just have, you know, I'm not talking about a huge IMG academy or or anything like that, but just a place where top-level players can go to train. So um, I'm interested in in looking around and seeing if there's a possibility and, and working with some other other pros out there and um, and helping out and then offering my support anytime I could help guys like Taylor I feel like I've got um, some sort of experience that can hopefully rub off on them and I can still hit every once in a while too and and I'd love to to help out um, in that way I, I don't feel like I can get on the road and go 30 weeks out of the year and coach someone um, just right now the way I, the way I'm with a young family but I feel like I could do it if it's close to home and and anyone I could help out there. And I don't think it's that tough to recruit people to come to San Diego. So I think it would it would hopefully be a good fit to get a to get a little program going there. I'm curious when you come here, you're you're coming to an office building, Midtown mm-hmm. Manhattan. There's mm-hmm. a slide card to get in. Mm-hmm. There's fluorescent lighting and mm-hmm. offices and cubicles. Um, you know, you're one of these guys who I think people could say, you know, I could see him transitioning to the corporate world. Yeah. Uh, from everything you're telling me, you're. <laughs> Happily ensconced in tennis. When you when you come to an office building in Midtown yeah. Manhattan, do you say, "Get me the hell out of here," or mm. is this you know your your friends that are doing yeah. things similar to who I am? Is this something that no, I, your mind? I definitely thought about it, and I I went through the process. I, I talked to some financial institutions and talked about um, getting out of the tennis world um, because I always thought I wanted to see what else was out there, and um, I went through the whole interviewing process and talked to a lot of a lot of firms, but. Uh, at the end of the day, it seemed like I, I definitely missed tennis and I wanted to be a part of it. And I felt like that's where I can be the most useful. Um, that's just the way it is. I I feel like if I were to start in the financial world, I'd still kind of start from the bottom. I work my way up, which I actually enjoy. That's, that was part of the the draw for me to the financial world was, was learning and getting better. Cause that's something that, that always interests me about anything in life. But, um, you know, as I was thinking about it, I thought about if, if someone, a businessman who was 35 years old, who had gone to business school, worked as hard as he could, decided, hey, I'm going to pick up tennis right now at 35 years old, you know, what are the chances he ever gets to the level I got to in tennis? It would be pretty tough. So, you know, if I were to start, if I'm starting at 35, you know, it's something that people have been doing since they were 18 years old and really studying for and focusing on, I can probably get to a certain point and get hopefully good at it, but I don't feel like I'd ever excel the way I can in tennis and where I can still hopefully be, be useful and, and uh, hopefully an important voice in younger players' lives. And your time wouldn't be your own. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's a big... Uh, um, tell us about the marathon real quick. Where, yeah. if people want to contribute... Remind us where we're going. Yeah, crowdrise.com, and then search for James Blake. Uh, all the money goes to the James Blake Foundation, which uh, supports early detection cancer research at Memorial Sloan Kettering. 
the institution is unbelievable. Um, so they, they, my father was a patient there. He, he was so close with all his doctors and nurses that the treatment is amazing, but, uh, along with their, their bedside manner being great, they're, one of, if not the top research uh, hospital in the world. So I'm proud to lend my support there. And they've been, uh, they've been nothing but helpful uh, ever since I started with them. What are we hoping for Sunday? Not time, just mean weather. We, we, okay, we the weather? The, uh, we want to see, by Sunday, we want the Mets to be up 3-1. Yes. What do we want in terms of 60-degree uh, uh, like fall day? 60-degree would be great. Anything, uh, so it's not pouring rain. I think that would be tough. Not too windy. And... Uh, yeah, 60, 60 would be fine. Anything pretty much between 45 and 65 would be would be amazing. Got your dinner place Saturday night? Got your, got your car place for... Uh... I don't have the dinner place yet. i got to figure that out. It's going to be some uh, some pasta, I'm sure, though. Uh, some pasta and chicken wherever we go. So I'll uh, I'll be happy to, to listen to to, uh, to any sort of request, recommendations or whatever. But I'm sure my wife and I will find, find a good place to get an early dinner and early to bed that night. All right. James Blake, finish strong. Power through. Yeah. <laughs> it's only pain. It's temporary. Good <laughs> Thank luck. you very thanks much. For, uh, thanks for coming by. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. That was James Blake. Always a good guy. Always somebody worth speaking to in this time with no exception. Again, he's running the marathon. Go to the James Blake Foundation to figure out how to support him. We'll have a new guest next week. Vicious rumor. We're going to get a lot younger than James Blake. We're going to talk to a teenager provided he remembers to turn on his phone this time. All right, for the Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast, I'm John Wertheim. Thanks for listening. See everyone next week. Mm-hmm.